All right. Well, let's get on with boss talk. Um, we've got uh, we've got Ollie, we've got Mark, um, and we're ready to roll. So, first question is: We are trying to figure out how to price our product. The general advice is that startups, by mistake, underprice their products. But what if we're actually overpriced, and that's why people aren't buying our product? Any advice on how we should figure this out? So, hey, Ben. Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, I have so many anecdotes on this. Um, when we started, actually, we didn't know how to price our product either. And you said, hey, I have an expert who knows how to help you. And you sent in uh, Mark Craney. And uh, <laughs> he would say, okay, what if, you know, we said, hey, we're thinking about doing like pay-as-you-go pricing. What do you think, Mark? And Mark would say, well, what does the customer say? And say, well, the, the, some customers want it. So then give it to them. Yes. Okay, but, but then some people want predictability. And it's about what did the customer say? It's like, well, some of them want predictability. So well, give, that, give that to them, you know? And everything we would tell them, he would just say, like, just give it to them, give it to them, give it to them. So give we were people super what confused. they want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we were super confused uh, walking out of that meeting. And, you know, that's, that's what it is, negotiating with the enterprise sales guy like Mark. But, um, you know, we, it's a lot complicated. We made a lot of mistakes. Like in the early days, we thought we had a really smart pricing model because we were elastic pricing in the cloud, right? You can pay for whatever you're using, but we came up with this thing that, you know, you pay us exactly the same amount, uh, you know, for what you, whatever you want to buy. If you want to buy 10 machines, pay us for 10 machines, but then you can violate that and use more. You can use actually 10 times more than that if you want, but only 10% of the time. Uh, yeah. You know, later on, it turned out no customer wanted that. And it turned out you can't actually implement it because none of the, you know, pricing vendors out there that do the pricing for you can even support that. So, uh, so it's been like a long journey for us to figure out how to do pricing, to be honest. Um, so it took us a very long time. I think the, the most important thing that we've learned is to do um, what we call WTP conversations with the customers. So we go and do these willingness to pay conversations mm -hmm. where we actually ask the customers um, how we should price it and what the right price, right price would be. And initially, I thought it's crazy because, you know, if you ask the customer, you know, what should I price this at? They'll say, well, it's too expensive. Like, you know, give it to me for free. Yeah. Uh, but there is actually a good way to do it. You can actually just ask them, you know, if I price this at 10 bucks a unit, would you think that's a low price? Or is that about the right price? Or would that be an expensive price? Or would it be prohibitively expensive? And it turns yeah. out if you ask it exactly like that, uh, most people actually end up, you know, they end up exaggerating a little bit. So what you want, if your price is right, most people will end up saying that it's expensive and that's a good yeah. price. So if most of your respondents are saying this is expensive, that's a good price. Uh, if they, if most people say it's prohibitively expensive, then you're probably too expensive. If they say this is the right price, you're probably underpricing your product. Uh, and you don't want to do that. Um, another thing we found out worked really well was GBB pricing, which is sort of good, better, best. You know, mm -hmm. you have three alternatives for customers. Turns out most customers want to kind of be in the middle. So mm -hmm. they don't yep, want to go yep. for the That's most. That's actually yeah. a psychological fact, yeah. Yeah, so they go for the sort of middle option. So you can have three options. And if you want, you can actually apply a trick, which is called the decoy pricing option, in which uh, you make sure that, you know, you put a kind of inferior option right next to the option you want them to pick. And it turns out that then humans just tend to then be more inclined to go with the rational choice, you know? So, 
you know, if people want to pay for, you know, a burger and a Coke and fries for, say, 10 bucks, if that's what they want to pay for it, you can actually get them to pay 12 bucks for it. If you just say, hey, I'll give you, you know, the, you know, for 10 bucks or for 12 bucks, I'll give you just burger and fries. Yeah. And I give you all three for, you know, 12 bucks. Then it turns out actually more people will say, well, that's stupid. So then they go with a higher priced option. So, um, but, you know, the key thing is we talk to the customers and we do this willingness to pay conversations and we ask them and we kind of figure out what the right prices are. We try to group them into this sort of good. We actually have the whole company meet once a week uh, to discuss pricing, um, you know, since six, seven years back. And it's like a recurring topic. So we're constantly changing it and improving it. So this is definitely not a simple topic to sort of, you can't summarize, you, you need a lot more time to sort of get to the bottom of it. Uh, and I think it's extremely strategic. It's as strategic as the product you're building. Uh, you know, companies have been wiped out and destroyed because they had the wrong pricing model or because the competitor used the bundling strategy. So uh, this is a deep topic that I think uh, deserves uh, attention from the top execs in the company. Yeah, well, so, you know, it's one of the things that I think, you know, as a, somebody who builds a product, you just don't know anything about. And but it's a thing that determines your market size, because, you know, it's like how many customers do you have? How much did they pay you? And that's the size of your market. Or how many customers can you get and what are they going to pay you? And so if you underprice it, you like literally shrink the size of your entire company. And of course, if you overprice it, then nobody buys it and you're dead. And so it is really, uh, you know, it's something um, that you have to refine. Now, if you're an enterprise software, you have a little easier time because, you know, changing prices is easier when you're in that game than it is uh you know, when you're a consumer product, it's more of a news story if you change the price or, you know, particularly if you raise the price. Yeah. I mean, do you want to put transparent prices on a web page? Can everyone find out what their price is or do they need to talk to someone to, to get the price? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's uh, another I mean, big decision. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. very hard to do high volume if you don't say your price, um, but then you constrain yourself much more. Yeah, so we found out over time that as the company got bigger and we had more salespeople, we started going more and more towards transparent pricing, put it on the web page because it's just hard to scale and get volumes, as you said. But in the early days, Mark was kind of right. We could have just done whatever, like just custom it for every customer in the beginning just to learn and collect data. And you don't need to put yeah. anything on the web page as you're getting product market fit. Yeah, exactly right. Mark, you were going to say something? Yeah, so I was thinking about the original question um, and what, what you guys have said. Um, and so sometimes, you know, <laughs> if a customer doesn't want to buy your product, like one of the easier excuses they can give or reasons they can give is it's too expensive. And I'd be curious, like, what you guys think, like, how how would you go about flushing out whether a customer is telling you the truth when they say it's too expensive or whether that's just an easy excuse for some more uh, fundamental problem? Yeah, it's almost never true that they would say, I'm not going to buy it because it's too expensive. You know, particularly if you're in the early days when you're setting the price, you know, at that point, they're going to negotiate. You know, particularly if you're a new company, they're going to go, well, like, I love this thing, but, you know, I don't want to pay that much. And so I think it is a false signal when if somebody says, I'm not buying it or like, we're not selling any because the price is too high. Because, you know, people will come back now. 
if it's a totally, um, you know, there is no salesperson involved and they're just, you know, whatever showing up on the website and deciding if they're going to buy it, then, then I do think it's a much more real signal. Yeah, I agree with that. In the early days, first of all, it's unlikely that you started your company and you're selling, you know, you're doing a $10 million deal. So, you know, the price points are pretty low initially anyway, uh, because mm -hmm. over time you build in more and more value and you can get higher up in the organizations. Um, so, you know, I, I haven't experienced that either, that they would just say, look, I love this product. It's amazing, uh, but I can't buy it. In that case, you can do custom discount for that one customer, right? Hopefully you're in a big market. You could, you could give them a custom discount and figure out what their actual price point is. But my favorite answer to this question, actually, to, to your question, Mark, mm -hmm. is there's a new world we live in in which you can actually change pricing to not be all or nothing upfront. So it doesn't need to have to be, hey, Mark, you have to pay me a million dollars. And you're like, no, I love your product, but a million is just too much. We can have a pay-as-you-go or pay-as-you-grow pricing model where I say, well, why don't you try it just a little bit and pay me by the hour, okay? And just use a little bit higher rate. And then later when you want to buy the full thing or you want to have much more sort of committed or you know, a, you know, a price that's sort of regular, then uh, I'll give you a discount. So that way we can sort of suss out. So we don't need to have to have a big negotiation on price up front. You can actually try it before you buy it a little bit. Trials is another way you can do it. And then freemium is another. So there's many, I think, alternatives that you have today that you can sort of, it doesn't need to be an all or nothing, big upfront negotiation on price. Yep. Felisa. Um, you had a question for Ali. Uh, you have done, Mike, um, but you had a question for Ali. Well, it's a little bit off topic. I'm, I'd rather wait because I'm going to digress a bit because I was just so no, taken back. Go ahead. And it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Ali. You know, um, I love your your story when you talked about growing up in Sweden, mm -hmm. and um, this is not about this. More the humanity point of view, like how your journey to from where you started in Sweden and how did you overcome some of the issues that you have to deal with? And you mentioned like all the races and horrible attacks that you have to deal with uh, when you grow up in Sweden. In fact, you mentioned that super insensitive racist people would refer to you as like a blacktop, which is equivalent to people just calling me the N-word. And uh, you also mentioned in our conversation how you were harassed by the police. And in general, you were an oppressed member of society. So I was curious, uh, what advice would you give young people who may be feeling that today? And how did you deal with that or fight against that type of mental torture that you were dealing with in Sweden? Because I can relate to it, and I'm sure there are other members listening in to this conversation who would benefit from your wisdom on how you dealt with it. All right. Ooh, uh, I didn't stop on that question. Uh, <laughs> um, well, it's what I think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. It is true. By the way, they called us blackheads. You know, I would be the literal translation, I guess, which I grew up with. Um, you know, honestly, I haven't told this story. I think uh, it was the, when I went to grad school that I really had my biggest lesson. I had the biggest epiphany in life uh, because uh, the professor, who was my professor, was also sort of, he was sort of a, blackhead like me. He was, you know, Egyptian, Muslim. And we attended this meeting where, you know, the, the meeting had these two guys uh, who came in and they were, I thought they were discriminating him like just crazy. Just from the get-go, they were, you know, 
joking about his background and like, you know, as if, you know, I mean, I wanted to like, just, you know, uh, pound my fist on the table and leave the room. And he's, he's the kind of, he's sort of a oblivious guy who doesn't notice any of these things. And he just sort of went ahead and, uh, just continued the meeting super positive. And every time they would joke about him, he'd kind of like turn it around and like joke back about it, you know, as if it was nothing. And he would like sort of assume super positive intents behind every one of their comments, which by the way, were like very obvious. Like these people had like, I don't know, they had a bone to pick with him. And, uh, and he just went ahead and just like, you know, he, he just assumed like, no, 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 there's nothing here. There's absolutely no racism here. And it was very obvious there was. And, you know, throughout this meeting, I saw him slowly turn these people. And then by the end of the meeting, they were kind of on his side. He had won them over. And the lesson I learned, which was uh, a big lesson for me, and I'm not saying anyone else should agree with me, or I'm not saying that this is the case in the United States, or I'm not trying to, I'm not saying, you know, people are wrong or right. This is just the lesson I learned for myself where I grew up with my background, which is, yes, I got discriminated a lot, but in the vast majority, like 99.999% of the cases, it was just the first impressions. It's just when I meet the person that does not know me, you know, if it's someone that I've never met before, or if it's in an interview and they've never seen me before, or it's like the first five, 10 minutes, that's when you judge people and you judge people based on your prejudices, what they look like, their race, their gender, you know, we all kind of do it. But what I learned in that meeting is if you just get half an hour with the person, they'll actually, even, you know, the most sort of, extreme people, they'll kind of come around and say, yeah, but he's not like the rest of them, you know? And I learned that basically, at least the discrimination I had faced in my life, almost all of it was just first half an hour, first 10 minutes. And when I realized that, that's when I realized, wow, I have huge power in my hands. I can pretty much turn anyone if I just get 30 minutes with them, you know, and I'll be treated for, you know, what I deserve, but I do need 30 minutes, right? When I come in, they might immediately assume but after 30 minutes, they're going to actually treat me based on what I said, say or what I do or, you know, my ideas. And I started living by that. And it completely transformed my life, I can say. Like there's my life before that meeting and there is my life after that meeting. And, you know, I would not be able to do the job I'm doing here. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't had, had that epiphany that day. So, again, I'm not saying, you know. If someone is facing an extremely difficult situation, I'm not kind of dismissing it and saying, oh, it's your fault. You know, you should have had a better attitude. I'm just saying that's kind of the epiphany I had and it transformed my life. And at least it's been true for me. Even when I say discrimination often happening towards me or others, oftentimes it's, uh, you know, people that you know, usually it comes down, comes down to things they've done or, you know, things they've said and so on and so forth. So that's my belief. I don't know how you feel. I mean, Felicia, you, I mean, you, you must have a perspective on this too, right? Well, yes. And to be honest with you, I'm not as evolved as you. <laughs> I think I find myself uh, working extra hard to be super nice to people uh, so they won't dislike me or that they won't judge me too quickly. And so I still struggle with it, but I definitely find a lot of inspiration from your story. And I'm sure other people in the room, hopefully they will find inspiration as well. So I really appreciate you sharing it. Yeah, thanks for the question. All right, all right. Now on to more- Back to pricing. More, <laughs> yeah, back to pricing. <laughs> so Ali and Ben, I'd love to hear more about your experience at Databricks and at the portfolio companies regarding valuing the 
data play versus early revenue as a signal of performance. How did you frame the story? Was there a clear market or were you creating it? Yeah, I mean, you could talk about this too. I mean, so the idea is, should you create a new category? Should you be thought leaders or should you just latch onto something, some existing thing and do something very small iterative? Um, you know, I mean, there are many things that are possible, but in Databricks case, since you asked about Databricks, um, we were a little bit early and we helped create categories. And, um, but the timing was right. We were not too early, but when we started, big data was very difficult. We kind of found this way where you could take these very interactive way of doing data science. They were called notebooks. They existed and couple them with big data processing. Uh, and that became a thing. And we kind of were the, you know, the first to do this. And then lots and lots of other companies started copying that, putting their notebooks into this so that you could do data science on it. Um, you know, we use the phrase unified analytics to say you can do all your sort of analytics and data science uh, in one place. Other people started using that term. Um, these days, we start talking about what we call the lake house, which is the convergence of two big fields in data science, which is, you know, how you can do data science and data lakes with data warehousing. We picked the phrase for it, which is sort of a portmanteau of those two words, data lakes and data warehouses, or lake houses. And it's kind of funny. It like evokes emotions. So we've always tried to be, you know, a little bit early, but it's sort of a trend you're seeing happening in the market. And if you kind of follow crossing the chasm, you can see that the innovators, so the first group in crossing the chasm, if you haven't read that book, read that book, uh, or the early adopters, which is the sort of second phase, to it and they like it and you know that because soon other so for instance when we launched the lake house the innovators and the early adopters actually loved it but if you look on the web there were a lot of sort of early majority people who hated it and it evoked really strong reactions you know one person even wrote a blog post called bullshit at the lake house uh you know this is actually a research <laughs> firm that wrote that right yeah. um so you're going <laughs> to get this kind of, title. Yeah, for a research firm that says bullshit at the lake house. And, um, you know, some people called it the shit house. And, you know, so uh, and we knew we knew that we we're onto something right. If the term you're defining is getting the hearts and minds of the frontier, the early adopters, the innovators. But of course, the people that are further out, they're like a little bit behind. And they're a little bit more conservative. They're going to have a adverse reaction. So for us, it was important to be a little bit early. But I think also if you're too early, it's as if you missed the, missed the whole thing. I mean, you can probably talk about loud cloud and, mm -hmm. you know, how, you know, right? I mean, uh, so yeah. I think timing is essential. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we were a little, although there was plenty of market demand. Um, the, the problem with loud cloud from a market timing standpoint wasn't the demand. The demand was there. The problem was the uh, supply. Um, and the uh, you, and specifically, you know, there was no virtualization in those days, and none of the underlying technologies that you really needed to do to build a cloud. Um, and so, they, it was just too expensive to provide. And you know, there they were like, and then there was, of course, the dot com crash, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> basically made every problem a thousand times worse. Um, and uh, you know, the bubble bursting and all that kind of thing. I think that you know, kind of inherent in the question is, you know, what's, you know, what do you value the kind of the the data play or the position versus the revenue? And I think that 
you know, if you're an entrepreneur, the way to think about it is, you know, for sure in your kind of series A, you're selling a story. Um, but, you know, sometime between uh, the kind of series A and the series C, that story better come true because like people won't buy the story anymore and certainly not at an es continuing escalating price unless the revenue shows up. And so, you know, it really is a stage question in that sense. Yeah. And um, you could say, yeah, we, we got to cheat a little bit, right? We were at UC Berkeley and we got to do research for many years on this stuff. So in some sense, we got yeah. a early start where there was no revenue pressure for us. So, you know, when we launched the company, there was already some initial product market fit. Uh, I, I think the problem is when you get, you know, a big investment, you get a lot of millions of dollars, there is an ex, you know, expectation for you to bring in the revenue. Uh, so the yeah. question is, how long can you survive before they give up on you? And they have to give up at some point, right? Your board and your investors at some point have to give up on you. They can't just forever say, yeah, they're all, you know, let's give them more time. Uh, so it's a balancing act. But all great companies that were created were created as part of new categories. You know, uh, at Google was not maybe the first company, but it was in the creation of the search engines. Uh, Microsoft in the creation of the operating systems for uh, PCs. Facebook in the creation of social networking. So these were new sort of categories that were being created. And these were the companies that came out as winners out of those categories. It wasn't an existing market that had been around 50 years. And then Facebook came along and became the 800 pound gorilla in it. Uh, so I think just chasing revenue also is problematic. Um, I mean, it depends on what your goal is. You want to create an epic company that's uh, going to go down in history, or if you just want to, you know, sell your company for $100 million or $50 million, that's a different story. You can probably do that by just chasing revenue and not having a yeah. great vision. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, the, to have something sustainable and that, that, can't just get wiped out by somebody who already has a business. You have to have you you have to have a much bigger vision. So that's a you know it's a really important point to kind of have both. You have to have a big vision and then you have to prove that the vision is true. <laughs> Which more, uh, yeah. the second part is, is is definitely the more difficult component. I, I like something that Mark said. I don't know if Mark remembers it. Yeah. Uh, Mark said at some point that. Uh, Every idea, because I asked him, what's a good idea? What's a bad idea? What's a good pitch, bad pitch? And he said, all ideas are good and they will all become true. The question is just, is it going to be you? And when is it going to happen? Uh, you know, at some point it will become true and it might not be you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's right. That's right. They, uh, they do eventually come true. And it's funny how the ideas from the dot-com era that everybody ridiculed all eventually came true. Um, and they were all good ideas. They were just mistimed, um, sadly, for, for, for those entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, some of them for decades. I remember the biggest joke of them all was pets.com, and, and the number of like <laughs> massive pet startups is, is incredible. <laughs> Smart homes, um, you know, cloud computing. Yeah. I, I did research on the predecessor of cloud computing, and we had almost given up on it. Uh, we called it utility computing. And the vision was, oh, we were gonna get, yeah. 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 Well, some yeah. of those, you know, the utility computing, the, had this ridiculous, that this was, you know, from the big companies where they would sell you like a rack of crap um, that was pre-integrated <laughs> and that was like the utility. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was kind of, 
they tried to solve a very hard technical problem with a bundling solution. Yeah, that was that was the kind of utility uh, computing era that that tends not to work. Um, but it was, you know, every every CIO used to always want to sell, like, you know, computing should be a utility. You should just like my power. I turn on the light switch and the power is there. I should turn on my, like, compute world and it should work. Um, but the details actually mattered a lot on that. Uh, yeah. Okay, but n- next question is, um, enjoy the show last week um, and about how new bets the company is taking and about how to structure those. One question that arose is that, any company probably has a thousand new things that it could do, but don't to stay focused. How do you evaluate when it's the right time to experiment on a new bet? How do you stay disciplined and not doing too many of them? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I don't know if you want to go first, but I mean, obviously, if you're trying to get product market fit, you shouldn't try lots of new ideas and branch mm-hmm. out too much. I mean, you have to take it seriously and you have to really make sure that. It's a product that's uh, that people are willing to pay for, uh, and that journey isn't. It's also not a binary one. It's not like okay, it's we don't have product market fit. Yesterday we found product market fit, ready to go. Let's launch some new product initiatives too. Uh, the product market fit one continues as you go through these different markets. The as I said, the early innovators or you know big large bank, a big laggard company at the sort of tail end of this crossing the chasm curve is different. So you have to continue evolving your product, its capabilities, and the partners that you have, and your go-to-market motion to reach these different markets. So it's a continuous thing. So you really kind of have to nail that end-to-end for your initial product. And that will take mm-hmm. at least, you know, I would guess a half a decade or something like that. So that I think that you have to do anyway. And I think I, I do see companies that think that this is a binary thing or that they have it, then they run out too fast. And they get ahead of themselves and they start launching new products and so on. So I would think if you're approaching around, uh, you should think about taking more bets on new product lines that you're trying to develop. That's at least what we started doing uh, at Databricks. Uh, around sort of when you see 100 million or when we saw 100 million be around the corner, that's when we started sort of developing uh, other products. Otherwise, you become a one-trick pony. And there's a lot of big reasonably successful companies that even IPO that do that, but they only have one product and a one trick pony. And if you look at the really companies like Amazon or AWS or Google, they have many, many products and they keep re-innovating themselves and uh, changing the things that they offer. That's what I would say. And I would say, be careful with persona switch. When we did our first, when we branched out first, we had Spark and we did this Delta thing, which was our second uh, initiative that we took it was still the same persona because I think persona switches are really, really hard. Uh, companies have a very hard time doing that. And when I say persona, I mean the kind of person that uses your product or buys your product. If you're trying to change that, so you're going to a market where you're, the person who changes, buys your product is slightly different person. I call that the persona switch. Yeah. That's really, really hard uh, because all your intuition about that customer or what what's natural to them or what they want or their requirements, all of that becomes completely false. You build that up, that intuition over years by having lots of conversations with customers and they tell you well, the pain points and yeah. And your, and your channel ceases to work. I mean, and the kind of the most dramatic 
example of this is kind of consumer companies trying to become enterprise companies or enterprise companies trying to become consumer companies. Almost all of them die on that idea because you it is just so different, particularly if you try and maintain whatever business you had before. Yeah. So it's it's once you have that intuition for who your persona is, what they want, now you understand them so well. And that's why you can so well develop features and capabilities for them and have the right channel to sell to them, as uh, Ben said, and the partners and all that. You switch that out, your whole company's intuition about what that customer wants is wrong. And you're building the wrong stuff. So you just have to be careful. If you're doing it, you have to be very deliberate about it. Cut out the new team. Treat it almost like a new startup. It's possible to do a new startup from scratch within a big company. I mean, that's always possible. We have to be very deliberate and careful about it and kind of uh, firewall them off. Um, that's not easy to do. Uh, yeah. And that's, you know, we started doing that actually after. So like our third product, fourth product was that way. And I told them that you guys are sort of a separate team here building for a different persona. And we hired product managers for them. We built a partner uh, ecosystem around them and so on. So in a really deliberate way, it's not impossible. I mean, but, uh, but it's much, much harder. Also, they didn't Slack do that then? Yeah, well, but they they abandoned the consumer product. So, you, you know, that was the advantage that they had is they just dropped the game entirely and, and built Slack. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's So they much... didn't have product market fit, right? So it's basically they were on the search for product market fit. And <laughs> yeah. They yeah, pivoted they, they away. They swung from... and missed. Yeah, and they yeah, weren't going to yeah. get there on the money they had. That was the, that was the trick of that pivot. Um, and interestingly, you know, well, I, when you say $100 million, that's interesting because early in the days of LoudCloud, you know, we had the first thing kind of going and, you know, I was going to start a second um, product and Bill Campbell said to me, he's like, I've got a better idea, Ben. And I was like, what's that? He's like, how about you get one business working? <laughs> and, and and that turned out to be very, very good advice. So I think it's really dangerous to do the second product or the second business before you have one of them working uh, would be kind of my answer to that. Um, okay, Our second then. one was really same persona. It was taking sort of our first product as a service and made it much more auto-configurable and what we call the pin fit for really large enterprises and redid a bunch of it. So it wasn't sort of a completely new persona, different adjacent. That, it turned out to be extremely successful and pivotal for our success. Uh, but also the other thing is there are ways to prevent launching many new products. So at Databricks, we have a lot of innovators, uh, a lot of PhDs, a lot of researchers. They want to launch new products all the time. So there are ways to slow that down. So one thing I did is I put something in, in place called MPA, which is new new product acceptance process that you have to go through. Mm -hmm. so if you want to launch a new product, you have to launch a new product acceptance process. And it's basically a bunch of hurdles. You have to have a financial plan. You have to have willingness to pay. You have, you have to articulate all of this. And then you have to get in front of sort of a committee in the company and convince them that this is a worthwhile effort. Because I was seeing, you know, people were encouraged by our second product and people were taking us in all kinds of directions. I want to launch this. I want to launch that. This is a good idea. This customer wanted that, so I'm going to build this. So put this doc together. And actually, one of the really interesting things I put in it, I put one sentence in there that said, each such effort also needs an L7 engineer to lead it, which 
is very high up on our ladder. We have very few L7 engineers at Databricks. And people would read the doc and say, hey, this is a good doc. I think we should, I can get behind this new product acceptance process. I only have one piece of feedback. And so, okay, what is that? And they say, well, I don't like this L7 requirement that there has to be an L7 engineer. And I said, why is that? So, well, we don't have that many of them. So we can't launch that many products. This is going to limit us. And so exactly, that's the point. Um, so there are processes you can put in place to slow, slow things down, uh, like a new product acceptance process. We know AWS has their PR, FAQ, and five-year plan process, which probably is similar in spirit too. Uh, so you can also make sure that you slow down your company so that it doesn't start chasing lots and lots of new ideas too early before you're mature with your existing one. Yep, 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 yeah, definitely a good point. Um, okay, Ben, you mentioned the policy where you had, where someone could only come into staff meeting if they brought you something that was broken in the company. How do you implement a policy like that, but make sure people don't over-rotate and start uh, finding fault or pointing fingers? And this is actually, it's a great question, but it's it's kind of the key to doing it in the staff meeting is that, you know, it's a lot harder to point fingers when the person's in the room. Like yeah. a lot of people will point fingers all day, but it's very rare bird that will point the finger uh, when the person is sitting right there. And, you know, I, I would say more than that, you know, if you really kind of, if that's the thing you think is wrong with the company, somebody else's kind of function or, or whatnot, um, then you're either going to do your job as an executive, which is kind of talk to that person and understand what the problem is, or you're going to have to deal with the potential clapback in the room. Uh, and so it's actually kind of a good test of, you know, executives' ability to do something that you need your executives to do. And I actually see a lot of startup CEOs not requiring this from their executive team, which is you have to be able to work with your peers. It's not enough that you manage your team and then you kind of give everybody else the finger, or punch them in the nose or do that kind of thing. You have to be able to get along. You have to be effective with your peers. And um, that kind of, that thing in executive staff escalates that requirement um, where, you know, they know that they have to do that because that gives you a, like a real live chance to manage it. That's, that's an excellent point. And I think another thing is making sure that things are blameless. So yeah. this is not about pointing fingers. The, the whole policy you have, I mean, this is your policy is and come to staff and tell me who screwed up in e-staff. And yeah, let's talk about that. it, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's right. not it. Because that, that's the essence of it, because I think that's the insecurity. And yeah. that's the vulnerability that we all face that, you know, oh, Jesus, he's talking about the thing I did. Uh, well, let me explain first before we talk about that, because, you know, that's, it didn't go down the way you said it went down. I didn't really, and it wasn't my decision and so on. So it's the, I think it has to be blameless. And yes. a lot of that comes with the tone and how you're doing it. Um, in the early days of Databricks, um, I was very different from I am to them. I, in fact, one of my co-founders, Patrick, came to me at some point and said, hey, Ali, what's happened? You've changed. And in the early days, I would go and look at something. And, you know, if it was broken, I would say, you screwed up and I would get pissed off and say, oh, these people are idiots. And, you know, if I wouldn't have made that mistake. How do they do this? And then you would yell at them and I would make them feel bad uh, and talk about how the problem is so stupid. How could they make this mistake and don't do this ever again? And, you know, you're better than this. And where did you come from? And so on. Um, 
And the problem with that approach is that it actually kind of works, uh, making everybody feel bad, but it only works for kind of a month or so. And then everything goes back to how things were before. Uh, so this gets to what Jeff Bezos calls, uh, you know, good intentions don't work. I mean, people have good intentions. These people don't want to make mistakes. Uh, they have the best of intentions, but people make mistakes and mistakes happen. Uh, so everybody's doing their best. What's the mechanism or process that we have to put in place to prevent errors? So the way I think of it now is problems happen everywhere. Mistakes happen because we're human. Please surface them. Everybody needs to bring their low lights. So everywhere you can, I've mentioned this before, bring highlights and low lights. And the low lights, we should think about what are the processes and mechanisms we put in place to prevent them from happening. But people will make the mistake. It's not about this person made this stupid mm -hmm. decision. Should we put a process in place so that stupid decisions cannot be made? Uh, that's how I view it. Of course, that leads to you having a lot of process. And I'm sure Reed Hastings has opinions on that. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he, he has a great counter in his book, um, No Rules. So for sure. Uh, so I, but I, I, think, yeah. I think the higher level point is actually the main point, um, which is this is our company. How is it screwed up? You know, like the customers don't like this part of the product. Uh, you know, we're not conveying this thing. You know, we've got like some old version of Python sitting around that's a security hole or whatever it is. Um, it's not about kind of blaming an individual. It's just like, okay, what what have we not gotten to that's now catching fire? And how do we kind of arrange ourselves to put out the fire and kind of make sure it doesn't happen again? So it it, it is, I think you're exactly right, is you have to bring a very team attitude to it. Um, but that's that's the truth with kind of getting to bad news. You can't talk about bad news if you're not a team. If you're looking to blame people um, as opposed to process, org structure, decisions you made for the problems in the company, then you're never going to know the bad news because everybody's going to, as they say, CYA. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, uh, it becomes a tit for tat, uh, right? It becomes yeah. a tit for tat. Okay, Ben brought up a flaw that you know was in my org, so now I'm going to fire back and show how his org was problematic. So you have to remove this blame and finger pointing out of it. But you have to focus on the problems. I mean, I think we have this uh, at Databricks and Spades. And the good news is I'm working on the problems that could blow up in six months or a year before even the board knows about it, those are the problems I'm working on, the things that I'm paranoid about that, because we're focusing maniacally on the issues that we have that could become really huge for us. Um, and we have a huge post-mortem culture. So issue, anything that goes wrong, we write post-mortems, we'd follow ups, and then we have a blameless culture where we go through those. Uh, we spend two hours going through those every week, every other week. Uh, and in the follow-ups, we make sure to put mechanisms in place to avoid the whole set of issues that would go wrong. So not just fix this bad decision or the issue that we're having, the problem we're having, but what would the way to completely fix it altogether uh, so we can avoid the whole class of issues? Um, so you got to get your culture there. And I think I found it interesting. Jeff Immelt had a podcast on what went wrong with uh, GE hmm. uh, when he was running it. And one of his big lessons was uh, that don't bring me bad news kind of culture. Yeah, 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 right. The, uh, the, 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 uh, the Wicked Witch in... Um, the Wiz. In, uh, the Wiz, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ain't yeah. nobody bring me no bad news. Yeah, very, very dangerous. It's, it's, yeah. I think it's the most dangerous thing to have in your culture that you can't talk about bad news. 
because what's wrong with your company is always known and it's always known by your own employees. And if you miss it, it's because you're, you've got a broken culture and you know, it's kind of like Boeing, you know, on the 737. Yep. There were guys in that company that knew that that plane should never have been shipped. And they felt like they weren't allowed to talk. Like, I can see that. I, I don't know anybody at Boeing, but I know that's what happened because I've run enough organizations. And that's how dangerous it is. Like, people can die. And the quotes have leaked, right? Now you can see the quotes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the quotes have leaked from the engineers where they were sort of making yeah. jokes about how unsafe the damn thing was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And But, you know, c can you imagine, like, an environment can get that bad where people are literally going to die and but people are so afraid to say something that it never gets to the CEO or if it does like the CEO, you know, just looks for the person to blame. Uh, and uh, so, so it's a really, really important point. Okay. Let me ask you another question. All right. Ali, you mentioned that running a cloud business is really different from on-prem and that an innovator's dilemma occurs when shifting from an on-prem cloud version of a product What are the different organizational muscles that you have to develop to be in the cloud business? Any advice for a company that's trying to make a leap from an on-prem, probably an open source offering, to a cloud offering? Yeah, okay. So maybe some context because not everybody's sort of familiar with this. So this is we're talking about how you build software, typically in enterprise companies and sell it. Uh, back in the day, it would be shrink-wrapped software. So you would go and buy it. It would be, have a CD in it. You install the software. And you upgrade just like you know Windows 3.1. You get upgraded to Windows XP or Windows 95 or whatever they're called. And the way it would work then is you would make these big releases. So you plan for Windows 95. You plan for what the killer features in that software is to put it in there. And you typically have one or two really important killer features, the new slick UI or something that you want to release. And and then you have your deadline. And then once you reach close to releasing the software, you freeze, you code freeze everything. Nobody can modify the code anymore. You move it to the testing team. So you have a separate testing team. They start QAing it. They're trying to find bugs in it. They try to hammer out to make sure that their software really works. And they find bugs. And some of those bugs are in your killer feature, the new slick UI of Windows or whatever it is. And then what are you going to do? You're going to miss the deadline. So there's sort of a fire drill at the end and you say, what should we, should we release it without this new slick UI? No, we can't do that. That was the whole point of this mega release. So you end up postponing the deadline and you keep going back to the, uh, to the drawing board and iterating and fixing the bugs. And that's how Windows 95, I think was released in 1997 or something like that. Um, so that's how on-premises software works. So it's like shrink wrapped software. And today in the cloud, you release the software all the time. So if you think of Google search, when you go search on the web, there's no particular version. It's not which version of Google search are you using? You don't know. You just type things in and it's just works. You don't even know which version it is. And Google keeps updating behind the scenes and they keep A-B testing it. Maybe you have a sl slightly different version than Ben used because they're testing the new version on you. Uh, so the question is, how do you get to that world? And it's very different teams. Um, the, the whole idea is basically agility you no longer want to release it once a year or twice a year or two, three times a year. You want to get to agile methodology where you're releasing the software quickly, hopefully every week, maybe even more frequently. You're getting quick feedback from the customers and then you're fixing the bugs and you're iterating on it. And this enables you to move fast. 
uh, it enables you to be data-driven because you're collecting data on how your software is being used. Uh, and also your customers are getting that software very quickly. Uh, in the on-premises shrink-wrapped software, you rely on the customer buying it and installing it and upgrading to it. And well, let they might me not ask, do that. Let me ask you an organizational question. At Databricks, how many people are responsible for the software that deploys and runs and keeps the software reliable versus how many people are responsible for actually writing the software, like the software so, that the customers yeah, use? So, so the first, yeah, I'll answer that. The, the first thing that you have to do is you break the monolith and you say, we're no longer going to do release twice a year. So we're going to have, we're going to do releases very frequently. So the first thing you have to do is say, you know, we're going to actually have each of the teams release their own software. So it's no longer one big Windows 95 release but the different pieces of Windows are being released all the time. You know? So maybe the messaging app gets upgraded quickly under the hood. Maybe this part of the UI gets upgraded. So you enable each team to do their own release. And then you enable, so that's really important. You have to move to that. And each team is now on the hook of making sure that also uh, their code is tested. And they're also on call. So if something goes wrong, they carry pager duties and they're woken up in the middle of the night to come back and fix it and quickly fix a new fix for that. And that creates a really good incentive alignment because no one wants to be woken up at 3 a.m. Uh, to fix their code because there's an outage. Uh, so that means you're going to write just better software. Uh, so there's an incentive alignment. So you basically create these vertical teams where you have people that do their own testing, they do their own deployment, they do their own on-calls. Uh, and you have these teams that are sort of end-to-end -end aligned with what they're building for the customer. And you have lots of, lots of, lots of those teams. And that enables you to move faster. But this, is, this requires you to reorganize. You no longer have a separate team that does the quality assurance, a separate team that does the testing, a separate team that does the releasing. You want the release to happen by every team. Uh, and this will take time. And it requires you also to go through just just how do we make sure that when we release different parts of the software, that it works with all the different pieces of the software that we also have. These are problems you don't have if you're just releasing a monolith once a year, because you just freeze everything, and then you just test it for three months or six months, and then you release it. But if you do this, you'll basically beat all the competition. Uh, and the reason you can beat the competition is that this is how basically Databricks beat a lot of its competitors that were selling on shrink-trapped on-premise software. Because we were getting customer feedback that would say, go build X. We would go build X, release it two weeks later. They would have it automatically because they had no save. We would just upgrade them to the latest version. We would collect data and we would find out, oh, they didn't like it. X was not built the right way. We'd go back and iterate, fix it, release it again. And in four or five weeks, we had fixed the mistake we had made. Whereas the on-premises shrink-wrapped software vendors, they were, it was going to take them six months to release it, and then their sales team would have to sell the new version to the customer, and then they would have to upgrade to it, and then they find out they built it the wrong way. So it would take them a year to iterate on the software. We were able to iterate two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and we just outran the competition. So we could just fix our mistakes much faster and run faster. So the secret is agility, but the way to do it is to break the monolith and have these verticalized teams that are completely empowered to run everything end-to-end. And if you understand it in this way, then you understand that it's just completely two different worlds of operation. There, there's nothing almost in common between these two. So companies that try to do both on-prem and in the cloud or try to do both models or they think that they can just add the cloud later or SaaS a little bit later, 
they're really, really mistaken. It's, it's much harder to reorganize everything and make it work this way. And it's a journey that takes many years. Yeah, yeah. No, no, Does that no answer question. your question? Yeah, and I think I think that um, you know the the thing that's key to me as you kind of describe like the journey is you have to commit to it. It's very difficult to go. Okay, we're going to continue our open source on prem business, and then we're also going to be world class at the cloud because there's just a lot that goes into being world class in the cloud, and there's a lot that goes into being world class on prem. And so it's it's really a challenge to do both. And you lead yourself vulnerable on either front if you try to do both. And, you know, at scale, I think there are very few companies that know how to release software in the cloud properly uh, at yeah. scale. I don't know how many, I'm gonna make up a number, maybe 10, 20, but uh, very few companies know how to do that at scale. And it's hard um, to make sure that you have a great, uh, reliability and the thing doesn't go down and it's secure and it's always up. So this is hard to do. So you better get started on it from the beginning. If, if you're doing a startup now, um, I would, my strong opinion now depends on what you're exactly doing, but I would start it in the cloud. I would have cloud software that's released regularly and not have shrink wrapped on-prem software. I think it makes no sense to me when people say they do that. Of course, there might be some exceptions depending on the market or the product, but generally speaking, in this day yeah. and age, I can't believe people are on-prem. Yeah, well, especially if you're a startup. By the time it gets, you know, you you get anywhere near running out of market, it's going to be 2030. <laughs> and yeah. I, th I think on-prem is going to be over by then, uh, or yeah. that would be my guess. Um, okay, so we both mentioned an executive who wasn't a fit at Databricks because they couldn't do basic arithmetic. Um, <laughs> you mentioned you know, that. <laughs> I did, I did. How do you know what is the core quality for culture fit and how do you balance that against needing diverse skill sets and not hiring in your own image? Uh, for example, hiring an engineer to do sales. And I think, like, that's a great question. I think that, you know, in general, you do want diverse skill sets. You want people who can do different things. But, you know, if you're talking about a member of the executive team, you do have to know who you are as a company. And like different companies have different personalities. Some companies are like really aggressive kind of marketing and sales companies. And if you have somebody who's allergic to marketing, who's on that team, it's just going to be very, very difficult. Um, and if you have a team that was founded by six PhDs in computer science and you're an executive that's not good at math, like that's just going to, that's never not going to be a problem. Um, and so like some of it is like you are a little constrained by the personality of your company, I think. Um, but like generally, there's many roles in a company and there can be many people at Databricks who aren't great at math, just not on the executive team um, and particularly not at that stage uh, when the company was just forming. And it was such a kind of tight loop uh, is is my feeling on it. But what are your thoughts, Ali? Yeah, I think, look, I it kind of goes back to Felicia's original question about, uh, you know, discrimination and all those things. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think people that come from very different backgrounds and look very different and, you know, might not be great fit actually turn out to get along really, really great. Just look at a lot of couples out there. Uh, and um, for me, the most important thing is when I 
hire someone, of course, they have to have the skill set and they have to have the right smarts and so on. Like if you're going to lead marketing, there's a demand gen function. You have to be good at that's basically a data science for marketing. So you got to be good at that. Uh, but when it comes to culture, for me, the way I assess it, I said it in an earlier episode, but maybe I'll share a story. Uh, for me, the most important thing is, can I really work with this person through tough times? And um, the example I have, and I learned this, and I kind of knew this, but I still made the mistake. Um, I hired an executive. They interviewed really well. Everybody was thumbs up. Obviously, our presentation and all of our, our process focused a lot on the smarts. The, you know, what's your plan? What's your strategy? What are you going to do? Do you know the answer to this question? Do you know the answer to that question? And they aced all of it. So we were sort of, this is awesome. And then we did the back doors. Yep. This person mm -hmm. is very smart. They're going to kick ass. Perfect. It's probably higher then. But I had this kind of eerie sense that it's, I, I don't really completely click with this person personally. Mm -hmm. So I actually took a weekend and came into the office. I called them in as well. And then I gave them a problem. And I said, look, this, do this and that. And they, they came up with a solution. I said, here's how I would solve it. And the solution didn't make any sense to me. So I said, look, that doesn't make any sense to me. And this person pushed back really hard. So no, absolutely, this is how everybody does it. This is industry standard. Don't push back on this, blah, blah. And really yeah. strong opinions, but they didn't really tell me rational reasons of why this was a bad idea. So then I pushed back again. <laughs> I said, look, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, why? I mean, here's, here's the reason it doesn't make sense to me. And I said it. And they still didn't address the core issue. Again, they pushed back. This is how everybody does it. This is nonsense. You can ask anyone and so on, but they didn't get to the core issue, which is the criticism I had raised. So then... I, a third time, I said, look, this makes no sense. I wouldn't do it this way. I would do it this other way. Then the executive turned around and said, okay, you're right, actually. I agree with you. I said, wait a minute, really? Or you're just giving up? I said, no, no, I actually fully agree with you now. I said, but yeah. wait a minute. Said, What's, how's that happening? I said, no, no, I think you're actually right, Ali. So let's just <laughs> do it this way. I was like, no, but seriously, are you upset? It's like, no, 100%. I'm not upset. It's nothing. I, I just, I think you're right all along. I mean, I, I do think this is what I should do. Yes, I take it back. This is the right way. I just, so it left, left me that I thought about it the next day. And I said, this is kind of weird, but look, this person is super smart. They have perfect CV. They answered all the questions, right? My interaction with them is a little bit weird, uh, but whatever. So I hired the exec and mm -hmm. guess what? When things got rough and things got difficult, that was exactly how our interaction always was. You know, it was exactly a repeat of the story that I just told you. And the, the, the tougher it got and the rougher things got and the more challenges we had, the more things we had to walk through and work through, it, the interaction would be exactly that way. They would just push back and want to do it this way, but we're not really, we really never, you know, it's like couples say, we could never really communicate. We couldn't really hear each other. And right. hence, we couldn't fight through difficult problems together or resolve them. So for me, the litmus test is kind of like what your parents tell you, right? They say, you know, a friend is really only a good friend if you can travel with them and see them in a good mood and a bad mood and you get along, you see their good sides and bad sides. It's kind of the same thing with an exec. I have to be able to work through difficult problems with an exec. So I'm, I try to spend time with them and I try to figure out, is this a person that you know I'm ready to spend my many, many hours a day to work through really difficult times when we're both emotionally exhausted, angry, and have a lot of emotions tied to this thing and we can fix things and be constructive together. Then I hired them. So that for me is cultural fit. And the way I do it, I try to also do it with e-staff. So if they can do that, if we as a team kind of can work together, I'm cool with it. Uh, 
we don't need to look the same. We don't need to have the same background. They don't have to have a PhD. Uh, but it's then I know it's going to work. And if I can't get to that, um, I worry about how we're going to work together. And I do think you're right that that does pose some, not everybody will get along with us. We have a certain background and we are a certain way. Uh, but many more than meets the eye, I think, would be able to uh, fit in culturally uh, in my exec stuff. Yeah, no, I think that's right. You know, and it's, it's kind of a great point that you bring up about um, there are like many smart people who can kind of run a playbook, but not write a playbook. And so yeah. they, you know, you say, here's the play and they can run the play, but they don't understand why that's the right play. Um, and, you know, when you take somebody who's been really, really good at one level and then you put them into a leadership position and they can't do that that becomes very problematic very fast. And I think that, yeah. um, you know, this is, you know, this is where hiring leaders is so tricky because, you know, determining that you have to get pretty deep to figure out. So spend a lot of time with them, uh, spend it outside yeah. of the classic 45 minute interview window. Uh, yeah. I read no, no, some, they, yeah. 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 I read somewhere that's on that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So spend a lot of time in many different environments and see, can you really, is this someone you would get along with? Can you really work with them really deeply? Uh, if you can, then that's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, all right. So we're coming up on the hour. Next week, we, we're going to have a special guest on Boss Talk. We're going to have Shaka Senghor. Um, and so we're going to be able to talk about kind of uh boss stuff in nonprofit world and boss stuff in prison with him um, and how some of these ideas translate and don't translate across environments. Um, so we look forward to seeing you then. Thank you, for Felicia, for the good question. Thank you, Jorge, for getting the room started. Um, and uh, we will see you next week. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Ben, Felicia, Mark. <laughs>